Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. We are about to record probably your all time favorite episode. I'm making a prediction, making a call in advance. I think it might be. <laughs> Guys, this is going to be an episode focused on the original Jurassic Park. <laughs> And we'll put a picture up on our different social media sites, but Ashley... I came prepared. She came prepared. Tell them what you're wearing. I opened the door and I said, I am ready. (laughs) I'm wearing the Jurassic Park logo shirt. Yes. And she was smiling ear to ear. This is when we have a listener request, this is Ashley requests. This is Ashley. I love it. Everybody, I think, already knows what a loyal fan you are. I think we could call you a super fan for Jurassic Park a little bit. I think Jack is a super fan. Well, okay. Yes. Yes. So I I will happily take second super fan. I don't have the broad knowledge that Jack probably does. And Mm -hmm. if you guys don't know who I'm talking about when I say Jack, when we did the Pot of Tea interview, Mm -hmm. we found out that one of our friends that we interviewed actually has worked on the Jurassic Park film. And he's a super fan. He got hired by the team. And I had no idea when we started the interview. And it was magnificent. So (laughs) I think he gets the title of super fan. But I I will happily take that silver medal. Yes. So I thought I would start by asking you, you could probably talk at length about this. I could. And I'm going to try to like keep a tap on it. <laughs> well, but give us just one or two reasons why you think Jurassic Park made such an impression on you. One or two reasons. Okay. One of the reasons was I saw it when I was at a young impressionable age. Mm-hmm. So I was around 13 years old. It came out the summer of 1993. So that's a pretty impressionable age to yeah. see something. And I think it has endured for me the original more so than all of the sequels and mm-hmm. follow-ups because I think It's something we touched on in Jaws. It was the first... So it was new and novel, Mm -hmm. but also it is more of a character piece than it is about the dinosaurs to me. So it's about like the relationships of the people and the kids. And and one of the subplots that is so beautiful in this is Grant's feelings about children. Yes. He starts the film saying that babies smell. He doesn't want a kid (laughs) and and they annoy him. And he, when he arrives at the island, the kids obviously hero worship him. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want anything to do with them. By the end of the film, they are cuddled up under his arms asleep and he has made this full transition to a father type figure for these kids. And that's one of the stories that really touches my heart. I just love the characters. I love their interactions with each other. And there happen to be really awesome dinosaurs and action and adventure. It's just got everything. It's got it all. Yes. Mm -hmm. I love too how, you know, his girlfriend in the movie, who was an amazing professional and expert Uh in her own right. She Uh was a beautifully developed character. But I love how she enjoys (laughs) watching Grant's transformation yes. with the children yes that's yes. that's a cute she said little addition because it'd be good for it'd you. be good for you yeah. i love that yeah <laughs> well i remember seeing it it was a, a very enjoyable experience for me i was very impressed with it you know i don't think it's made the impact on my life that it has on mm-hmm. on some other people including yours but when it came out i do recall i'd already read the book which i love yeah thought it was sh- such a unique premise it was mm-hmm. just so innovative so mm-hmm. new so different couldn't wait for the movie which i do recall was 
very hyped. Mm. I mean, everybody, I think, was waiting for that movie to come out. And so then many things stood out to me. But yes, the special effects and the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you left that movie in addition to the beautiful story. You were talking about the dinosaurs and the special effects. Mm -hmm. I, I recall that. I do not remember being hyped to see it. Mm. I think it was just something like, let's go see this movie. I had not read the book. Uh, I didn't actually read the book till I was around, oh, 20, in my 20s. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah way, a, way later. Way later. Yeah. yeah. And it was way different. I actually do prefer the film over mm-hmm. the book. But Ian Malcolm was a major character in that. Mm-hmm. I remember just there was passages and passages and passages of Ian Malcolm talking. And the next person would say, yep. And then <laughs> Ian Malcolm would talk and talk and talk. And they go, what do you mean? And Ian Malcolm would talk and talk. So that's what I remember from the book and also being really grossed out. Oh, yeah. Like Dennis Nedry's death. Mm. I had to put the book down. There's some graphic it, it stuff was in just, there. It made my stomach turn like, oh, icky. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's obviously a movie that made an impact on a very broad scale. In fact, I saw mentioned in a 2020 Good Housekeeping article where they had listed the top 30 sci-fi movies of all time. They phrased it as here are the top 30 movies that everyone should see at some point in their lifetime. Well, obviously Jurassic Park was one of those. Mm -hmm. And a quote from that Good Housekeeping article is this. The first of Steven Spielberg's legendary franchise brings everyone's favorite prehistoric creatures back to life with a clever premise. Scientists have figured out how to recreate dinosaurs using preserved DNA. In an iconic adventure story that has spurred countless more sequel films, Jurassic Park delivers both visual spectacular an exhilarating thrill and then parenthetical addition says not to mention a theme song that has now reached iconic status oh yeah it's up there with the Jaws theme song off the top of your head can you sing us that theme song nice it's funny because when I read that quote I could not call it back up really I had to go and I I looked it up on YouTube and it it gave me chills oh yeah like as soon as i heard it it was yeah. like oh yeah, yeah. and i have I a remember... cd of my favorite songs and it's on there <laughs> it and it's, it's as we said in jaws song. it's amazing the impact yes that a score can have on yes. you the emotional mm-hmm. manipulation mm-hmm. the the nostalgia mm-hmm. i mean all the things yeah it's a great score again by John Williams. According to an article in Looper magazine published just this past January, they said that this whole franchise centered around Jurassic Park is, in their words, a monster. The five films have a combined worldwide box office haul of over five billion dollars. I do not doubt it. They have at least 30 video games that have been inspired by this franchise. Mm. Some water rides, a Lego miniseries, even a live show. The water ride is the one at Universal. Yeah. You can do a POV of that. Oh, I haven't haven't done that. Have you done that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's got some kind of 80 foot drop at the end, which is why I'll never ride it because it like makes you feel like your soul is leaving your body. (laughs) I'm not interested in that. But yeah. Sounds pretty good actually. Uh, Yeah, you you could do it. You could go on that. But it just goes to show how popular, how widespread this has been. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been huge. Mm-hmm. So if there's anyone out there who's never seen the 1993 original Jurassic Park film, here is the summary from IMDb. On a remote island, 
a wealthy entrepreneur secretly creates a theme park featuring live dinosaurs drawn from prehistoric DNA. Before opening the attraction to the public, he invites a top paleontologist, a paleobotanist, a mathematician slash theorist, and his two eager grandchildren to experience the park and help calm anxious investors. However, their park visit is anything but tranquil as the park's security system breaks down, the prehistoric creatures break out, and the excitement builds to surprising results. There's no surprise. They're going to get eaten. <laughs> That's not a surprise. They foreshadow that again <laughs> yes, and again. Again and again. <laughs> Although if you think about it, if Dennis Nedry hadn't turned off the power and if he hadn't been killed, this probably never would have happened. So true. And it's the storm. It's like the natural storm coming and Dennis getting killed. He would have been able to complete this park had yeah. that, those things not happened. Yeah, he was the catalyst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he... And we know that because of Jurassic World. Because they got it up and running. Ah, you know. good point. Good point. Dennis Nedry. <laughs> And it was so, that is so funny that you said that because we were watching it again. We did our rewatch last night as well. My husband was like, oh, this was around the same time that Seinfeld, Seinfeld was popular. And, and we were like, <laughs> Newman. And it, you saw some parallels, I think. I think they did kind of call on mm-hmm. his character as Newman on Seinfeld in order to, I don't know, some nods or something mm-hmm. there. Well, here's a little background about the movie. Way back before it was actually produced, Steven Spielberg and the author, Michael Crichton, were actually working on something else together. They were in the early stages of developing this movie based on Michael Crichton's time working in an emergency room. He Mm -hmm. was a physician. And so while they were talking about this other project, he happens to mention to the director, uh, you know, of E.T. about his upcoming book, Jurassic Park. Well, Steven Spielberg was very interested. They ended up scrapping the other film, but it eventually, actually not that long later, actually turned into the medical drama ER that played on NBC for something like 15 years. Forever. Yeah, long time. But in the meantime, Universal went on to buy the rights to Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park novel for $2 million before it was even released. So in 2021, James Cameron revealed in some kind of an interview that he was actually hours away from making a bid trying to be the director for Jurassic Park when he found out he'd already lost out to Spielberg. And he had a quote, which I thought was was very nice. It says, it was the very best thing that could have happened because I would have made it like Aliens. I would have made it an R-rated, scare the crap out of you movie. And he says, actually, he addressed this to Steven Spielberg, and you made it just scary enough. Oh, that's perfect. I actually have a quote about a couple of those things that you just talked about. It's from the book Jurassic Park, The Ultimate Visual History, which Jack recommended and I purchased. And here is the quote from James Cameron. It says, so they sent out the scripts. Mm. to all the places. He says, I didn't read it Friday night. He got it Friday night. Mm -hmm. He says, I started reading it Saturday. I got to the scene where the Tyrannosaurus licks the windshield with the kids inside. I said, I've got to make this movie. (laughs) I never even finished the book. I called up and was told Stephen just bought it. Crichton was on vacation in Canada when the the bidding war broke out. I was a very popular person in Hollywood for about a day, he commented. (laughs) I love that. So as far as what you just said about Mm -hmm. Stephen and Crichton, they were actually longtime friends. They had met on the studio lot when they were first getting started oh, cool. in the business and Stephen actually gave Crichton a tour when they were both just not nobodies but you know what I mean like they weren't very well known right and so when they're working together later Stephen says 
Again, this is from that book. I just asked him casually, after ER, what are you writing next? And he says, I'm almost through with a book I've been working on for a couple of years. And I said, what's it about? Michael said, well, you know I never tell anybody my stories before they're published. And I said, oh, come on, Michael, just give me a clue. He said, okay, I'm going to give you a clue. And I'm not going to say anything more. I'm writing a book about dinosaurs and DNA. I leapt to my feet in my office and said, I want to direct it. Michael <laughs> said, are you crazy based on that? I said, that's the greatest logline I've ever heard. Whatever the book's about, I'm committing right now. Now. Yep. This book's got some great stuff. It does have some ah. great stuff. So another thing that I will quickly summarize is, is Crichton told him, he's like, look, I love you, but we got to put our business hats on. Mm -hmm. He says, I have to make the most money I can yes. out of this. So I'm going to release it. But he told him, if you are close to the highest bid, ah. if you're just underneath it, I'm going to give it to you because I want you to direct it. Nice. But truthfully, they ended up being the highest bid. And Stephen says he didn't have to do me any favors. We actually won at fair and square. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that, that would make me feel better. Well, something interesting. After winning the bid to do this film, Steven Spielberg was actually under an incredible amount of pressure because he wanted to make Schindler's List. Mm, but mm -hmm. the studio thought that it was a huge risk. So the president of MCA slash Universal would only let Steven Spielberg dupe Schindler's List if he made Jurassic Park first because they were kind of hedging their bets there. They wanted right. to make sure that it was going to be safe. This ended up being so stressful on Steven Spielberg. He was literally sometimes flying back and forth from one set to another. And I mean, it was just crazy. But it ended up being the very best thing that could have happened to this man. Here is a quote from Steven. Steven Spielberg. When I finally started shooting in Poland, I had to go home about two or three times a week and get on a very crude satellite feed to Northern California to be able to approve T-Rex shots. Mm -hmm. And it built a tremendous amount of resentment and anger that I had to do this, that I had to actually go from the emotional mm -hmm. weight of Schindler's List to dinosaurs chasing Jeeps. And all I could express was how angry that made me at the time. I was grateful later in June though, but until then it was a burden. So it was a challenge for him. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back later and talk about how well this paid off for this yeah. director. I think it. I think what he's experiencing right then is the gravity of film mm -hmm. versus the entertainment of film. Right. You know, you want to do something that means something. You want to put something out into the world that means something. And you can't find something that means any more than Schindler's right. List. I mean, this exactly. is just a, a film that needed to be made. It has deep, deep weight and, and meaning and nuance. And yet here you're like, oh, Jurassic Park is just this fun little frolic. But it can be good too. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about the, the family unit. It has stuff about the, the characters, it, the fear. And it, and there is something to be said for the popcorn entertainment, too, to take you away from the gravity of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that Steven Spielberg was very emotionally connected to the Schindler's List oh, project. Yeah. And I mean, he understood the incredible significance and importance of that mm -hmm. film. And so I can see why he would have that resentment. But I admire that despite feeling that this other film was so much more important in its message. Yeah and in what it was conveying to the world, he still put so much into Jurassic Park and he broke ground. He did oh, yeah. things that had never been done before and managed to just do amazing things with two films at the same time. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, I thought that we would kind of take this organizational approach. I'm like, how are we going to attack 
back this huge, huge movie. And I thought, well, let's talk about two or three of the reasons, of the many reasons, why this was such an amazing and important film. And so, of course, we could, I'm sure, talk for a week, but we'll just kind of pick and choose two okay. or three of the most significant ideas that kind of spoke to me as I was researching. Okay. All right. So one of the huge things behind Jurassic Park, as we've already alluded, was the fact that it actually had science behind it. Mm-hmm. It had this great book that Michael Crichton had written, and he did research. He incorporated real scientific things into this book, which made it more real and more impressive. And then Steven Spielberg ends up doing the same thing as he makes the film. He again tries to make it as authentic as he can. Here's a quote from that same article in Looper magazine that I've already referenced. While undoubtedly taking outrageous liberties for artistic effect, there is some serious science hiding behind or at least inspiring the movies. Genetic engineering, gene splicing, DNA editing, and cloning are all thriving disciplines in the 21st century. Right. De-extinction efforts to bring back long-dead species is something actually being pursued. And corporate ownership of genetic information, or biobanking, is a genuine bioethical controversy. Now, those are different issues that came up, not just in the first movie, but in the whole franchise. Mm -hmm. But these are scientific things that are real in our world. Mm -hmm. And, And Michael Crichton pulled on that. It says in this, again, The Ultimate Visual History, it says that he started it as a screenplay, Mm -hmm. but he switched it to a novel because the screenplay was too fantastic an event to be kept secret. He was Uh. originally making it a secret thing. Mm -hmm. It says, instead, he decided to turn the basic premise into a novel, a story about humankind's foolhardy attempt to toy with genetics and DNA, playing God by bringing extinct species of dinosaurs back to life. Yes. Well, again, they gave so much credit to Michael Crichton. Well, it wouldn't have been produced, first of all, but it also wouldn't have had the strength if it had not had the source material that came directly from Michael Crichton and his research. And they said that his reputation, Michael Crichton had already produced several important books that had been turned into movies. Um, Off the top of my head, Coma, I remember, was one of those. Okay. And did you know that he actually paid his tuition fees to Harvard Medical by writing novels? Oh, how cool is that? Yeah, instead of going out and getting a uh, like nine to five job, he just wrote novels. And he actually tried his hand as directing, which I did not mm-hmm. know that he was a director. He yeah. directed Westworld with Yul oh, Brenner. Well, cool. Mm-hmm. How impressive is that, that you can be in medical school at Harvard and then writing novels to to pay your way? He seemed to be just this machine of just genius. a smart guy and creative guy. If you're going to Harvard Medical, you're a smart guy. Yeah. Well, speaking of being smart, he had been inspired by scientists who were digging into the past in search of clues about life on Earth before the rise of, of humans. And one of the first clues that came across his radar was from this study published back in 1982 by an entomologist named George, um, his name is P-O-I-N-A-R, I'm going to say Poiner Jr., and some of the colleagues that he was working with. Well, these researchers had examined a fossil fly, not a mosquito, but a fossil fly found in amber thought to be 40 million years old. And it was suggested that the amber had preserved all the intracellular structures in this, quote, extreme form of mummification. And so one of these colleagues had suggested oh, you know, we might be able to extract DNA from this specimen, which would give scientists the DNA of an ancient creature for the very first time. And this is what Michael Crichton heard about. Mm. And he sends within 
I can't remember how many years it was, but it, not too long after, a few years later, he sends a Hollywood film crew to visit this guy's lab because he wants to know more about it. And I say, just because you could doesn't mean you should. Me and Ian Malcolm were like, <laughs> don't mess with this. So a quote from this Dr. Pointer, he says, Michael Crichton contacted us separately and flew out and we talked to him. Very nice, tall person. He's very tall, like 6'9". <laughs> yeah. He said, and then that was it. The next thing we knew, the book was out and then the movie was out. Now this science historian named Elizabeth Jones, who was writing a book about the DNA angle and Jurassic Park kind of connecting those things, she actually noticed that in one edition of Michael Crichton's book, he, in the acknowledgement section, he gave a shout out to this Dr. Pointer. Oh, cool. But in another edition, they gave a shout out to a different guy named Charles Pellegrino. Now, he was a writer who had published a story in 1985 called Dinosaur Capsule, and it was in a fiction magazine, Omni. And this story also explored the possibility of bringing dinosaurs back to life by mining fossilized DNA. Mm. So her quote was, there's a lot of controversy between Pointer and Pellegrino about who has priority to the <laughs> Jurassic Park idea. Oh but again, Michael Crichton pulling this directly from these other people's work and their and their ideas. Do you want to hear some quotes about? Yes, okay. please. So again, from this book, it says, uh, this is him talking about trying to come up with the idea for it as far as the fictionalized part. He said, quote, there's only a certain amount of things you can do with a dinosaur. They're very large, which limits their action. He, he struggled at first to find the right context for the story. They're difficult to hide, and their creation would be so terrific, you couldn't believe anybody would be able to keep it a secret. So there was a real problem for me trying to find a motor to run the story. Mm -hmm. Then I began to ask who would make dinosaurs, because after all, it would be frightfully expensive. All I could conclude is that you could make it a tourist attraction, because everyone would want to see it. Mm -hmm. So I told you he directed Westworld, and it says he resisted placing the story in the theme park because he'd already done that in Westworld. Right. But he couldn't find any other credible way to do it, so yeah. he decided to. He says the first draft of the novel was written primarily from the perspective of a young boy present when prehistoric creatures escape from the park. So he sends that to a bunch of his friends and they all hated it. <laughs> then he's like, okay, so they hate it. He changes it and gives the book a different main character, Dr. Alan Grant. Yes. And then everybody liked it. Ah, so I find I that fascinating it. that they didn't like it from the perspective of a child. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't scary enough or intellectual Maybe. enough because mm -hmm. you had to take that innocent view. Maybe it didn't allow you to get into enough of the science and the adult perspective things, you know? Maybe. And it's, he said that they're all based even loosely on real people, all the characters. You could not have given me a better segue. Excellent. Because the very next part of what I was going to discuss was that the character of Alan Grant was at least partly based on a real life man named Jack Horner. Mm -hmm. So Jack Horner is a famous paleontologist who also does some teaching in the field. And he came up with a theory that actually shows up in the movie and, and affected science in general. Jack Horner in this one article explained that before the 1970s, people thought of dinosaurs as being basically like lizards. They were thinking of them as very kind of scaly, you know, think alligators, that type of thing. This alternative theory came out through a man, a paleontologist named John Ostrom, where he said that they might be more related to birds based on studies of dinosaur skeletons. But people just didn't really believe him until supposedly around 1978 when this guy, Jack Horner, found a fossilized nest of baby dinosaurs. He said, quote, the babies had more than doubled in size after they had hatched from their eggs. It was the first clear evidence that dinosaurs cared for their young and brought food to the babies, which is very bird-like and not like other reptiles. So it was the thing that helped push the whole business over and people started realizing that dinosaurs really had 
have given rise to birds. So this Montana site that Jack Horner found with these baby dinosaur eggs was the first ever found in the Western Hemisphere and the first dinosaur embryos found anywhere in the world. He said that this was a paradigm shift for him and everybody else. He said, our preconceived ideas are hard to move. I had, as a little kid, played with my good reptilian dinosaurs mm -hmm. in the backyard. The idea of them being bird-like? We think of birds as being not as mean and nasty. They're just birds. To think of my dinosaurs as being chickens? It was hard for me to get past that. But then he talks a lot about how people underestimate how bird-like dinosaurs were. As we saw in the movie, it could be terrifying. He says, this is again another quote from Jack Horner, a mammal, a lion or a tiger or whatever will bite the neck of its prey and kill it, stand back and wait until it dies. A raptorial bird knocks its prey down and just stands on it and eats it. Yep. They don't bother to see if it's dead or not. Most birds eat their prey alive. Oh yeah. One thing I have on here, I did not write down the quote, but Jack Horner was actually a consult on the film. Yes, he was. And he pressed for there to be feathers on the birds and Steven Spielberg was like, no, we're yeah. not doing that. They did add some things, but as you said, they did not put the feathers on there because they didn't feel like it would be scary enough. Right, that so was that was reason. one of the artistic mm -hmm. license decisions that they made. But here's what I had in my notes. Artistic license is mainly responsible for the omission of feathers. At the time, feathered dinosaurs just did not seem scary. And to piggyback on what you said, not only was Jack Horner an advisor to Steven Spielberg on the film, Jurassic Park, this original 1993 film, but they also brought in Dr. Robert Baker, one of the world's most famous paleontologists. So they had two advisors Ooh. that they were paying to consider salt here. That's one thing I want to bring up right now and maybe you're going to talk about this but I am so impressed by the extensive planning mm -hmm. that went into this film. Like I do films with stuff that just exists. So we're in a living room. Okay the film is in a living room. We're just going to take what's here. But they had to create entire world. They yes. had to create these dinosaurs. They had to create everything about it right. and it took years to even create it. Mm -hmm. So that just blows me away the amount of planning and the thought that went behind every single piece of this yeah. which is probably another reason why it turned out so extraordinarily well right I mean a two-hour movie for us and as you said the the time investment the mm -hmm. money investment all the artistic investments so many things well a second reason why this film was so incredible was the casting yes yes there have been a lot of interviews actually recently because of the new movie that's coming out Jurassic Park Dominions coming out so they've they've had a lot of sit-downs with the original cast right. Laura Dern Sam Neal. They're calling them the and, legacy cast. Oh, I love it. Yes. The legacy cast. And Jeff Goldblum. And so different interviews that I've seen have had the three of them talking together. And so a comment made, I think by Laura actually, was that they were strangers to each other when they arrived in August of 1992 on the island of Kauai in Hawaii to make mm -hmm. this movie. And Jeff Goldblum added, we hadn't met, never at a party or in passing or anything. And then Sam Neill chimed in and said, and we met in a hotel that literally had three weeks to live. It was destroyed mm -hmm. three weeks later. Yeah. So one of the points, they, they go on to talk about this. It was during Hurricane Aniki, a Category 4 tropical cyclone that ends up pulverizing the island, mm -hmm. and at one point towards the end, stranding the cast and crew, which made them have to like huddle up and then be evacuated. Mm -hmm. Laura Dern pointed out that partly because of the hurricane, she said that and just their interactions with each other really caused them to become a family. She said, quote, Stephen, producer Kathy Kennedy, I mean, these are family members now mm. through all our lives together, including the amazing Jeff Goldblum and my gorgeous Sam. Mm, the amazing Jeff Goldblum. They actually dated for a little mm. bit after the... And got engaged. Did they really? Yes. 
I thought there was a little out. bit of romantic tension when he's doing that the water droplet on her hand. I thought so too. Yes. I was like, Sam, what's happening yeah, over there? You gotta get two. your woman back. <laughs> I saw the same thing. Malcolm's moving in. So to look at some of these casting considerations during the 30th anniversary screening of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark in 2011, Steven Spielberg let it slip that Harrison Ford mm-hmm. had passed on the role of Dr. Alan Grant. Mm-hmm. Other, he said, at this oh. point in my life, I'm just not about that. Some other actors who were up for that part, though, were William Hurt, Richard Dreyfuss. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, Steven Spielberg he and loves Richard him Dreyfuss some Richard a connection. Yeah. But as you said, ultimately, it was Sam Neill, this New Zealander, who got the part. And quick little side note, you've probably seen it in the news as well. Sam Neill talked about how he has taken so much flack over his accent all these years. Why? I think it's delightful. Well, he's, a, again, a New Zealander. Uh-huh. And so he was told at first to do an American accent. Yeah. Now, this is a quote from Sam. He says, Stevens comes up to him halfway through one of the days they've been working and says, hey, Sam, you know the accent we were talking about? I said, yeah, I've been working on it for four weeks. He said, don't worry about it. Just use your own voice. I said, that's great, Stephen. Thank you so much. And then four days later, he came up to me and said, you know that voice you're using now? I said, yeah, my voice? He said, somewhere in between. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) He said, and then this was Sam Neill's last comment. It's an actor's nightmare. So that's why I get a lot of flack to this day. I don't see, I guess. It didn't bother me at all. It didn't bother, I don't even see when it changes. I just, I I don't know. I just, I, well, let me say this. There's a lot of goofs in this film. Mm. And there's a, a guy called Crazy Nate. And he's oh. got a YouTube channel. And I wrote down some of the stuff that he points out. And once oh. he points it out, you see you it. You do see it. You can't you miss see it, probably. It, all of it. Yeah. But I don't care. Yeah. I just look past it. I, being someone who's made films, not to this level, let's be true. But I just look past it. And I know, like, you, you all were doing your best. And this was a hard film to make. And oh, I enjoyed it Incredibly anyway. difficult. And really well done. Yes. Despite any little glitches yes. that there might be. But some of them are major glitches. But still, it's oh. fine. Okay. We need to hear a few of these. Do you want to know it now? Let's hear, let's hear a couple. Okay. A couple of them now. Now, a major one is when they go through the gate of, and he says, what do you got in there, King Kong? If you look at the, the tall shot, you uh-huh. can see the end of the gate. Oh, you can see where... It just stops. It just stops. <laughs> and also on the, the gate with the 10,000 volts, he's like, why didn't they just go around? Because if you do a wide shot, you can see where it just ends. Another funny <laughs> one, this is one you really cannot not see now, is in the kitchen. When the raptor first comes through that door, uh-huh. if you notice, there is a man who puts his hand on the raptor because it starts to tilt forward. Oh. A hand comes into the doorway and pushes down <laughs> on the back of the raptor to stabilize it, and it just moves on. Oh, that is so funny. That's very funny. Okay, you're right, but I've never seen those. I, I Now I'm going to have to go back and look. Oh, one other thing. Dennis was watching Jaws on his computer. I did see that in one of the little trivia pieces. Yeah. I loved it. The The last little trivia I'll give you is the one that everybody knows. If you watch it, you know this. The cliff versus no cliff. You know, when the T-Rex crosses through the paddock, she walked straight out oh. into the main road, right? Yes. But then when Grant goes with uh, with uh, Lex, they almost fall backwards because now there's this giant cliff. Oh. And you see the goat even. Yes. Now there's a cliff and they have to scale down the cliff. And that one actually got pointed out to Steven Spielberg while they're making it. And they said, um, don't you think the audience is going to go, there's no cliff now <laughs> cliff. And his answer was, there's a dinosaur right there. They're not going to care about the cliff. I'm surprised with his attention to detail and how meticulous he <laughs> 
maybe at that point he's like, you know what? He, I'm, I'm, I'm over done. here in Poland filming <laughs> Schindler's <laughs> List. I can't deal with that right no, now. No, I think they pointed out like while filming and he says there's a giant dinosaur. Nobody's going to care that it was a cliff and not a cliff. Yeah. And but I mean, right. he was going back and forth between That's the true. projects. That's yeah. true. Well, moving on to the character of Ellie Sattler, Laura Dern beat out Gwyneth Paltrow, Helen Hunt, Sandra Bullock, and Robin Wright to get that part. Oh. Yeah. And she revealed in an interview at some point that Nicolas Cage, who she was co-starring in Wild at Heart with, was one of the ones who helped convince her to do it. She had told him that they wanted to put her on the phone with Steven Spielberg about some dinosaur movie. And Nicolas Cage was like, you're doing a dinosaur movie? Nobody can ever say no to a dinosaur movie. Are you kidding me? It's the dream of my life to do a movie with a dinosaur. And she said he was such an influence on her. Yeah. That's good. So with Jeff Goldblum. Now, and you had already referenced this. He played Ian Malcolm and that character changed a lot. Yes, it did. From the book version to the movie version. And I adore him in the movie version. I do too. I do not remember how much I loved him until I did my rewatch. And one of the things I read in this book, and I can't, I didn't write down the, the page of the quote, but his character was originally going to be absorbed into Alan Grant. Mm-hmm. But once they interviewed him and he said, well, geez, I really hope you don't do that. But they talked <laughs> to him and they loved his unique speech pattern. They loved mm-hmm. what he brought to it. And so the person rewriting for like the third time the screenplay, once he started picturing Jeff, he said Ian Malcolm just came alive. Yes. And so he wrote for Jeff Goldblum. I love that. Yeah, I had seen the same thing about the considering absorbing him into uh-huh. Dr. Grant, but I had not heard about the rewrite and writing for Jeff Goldblum. That's yep. amazing. He definitely added so much humor and personality. Yes. Well, here are a few things about Jeff Goldblum and his character. So first of all, he beat out Jim Carrey for that uh, yeah, role. I heard that. Yeah, mm-hmm. they said that Jim had had a terrific audition, but one of the, well, it was actually the casting director, told Entertainment Weekly, I think pretty quickly, we all love the idea of Jeff. So he must have yeah. just stolen the show. Yeah. To add one other thought about how the character changed from the book to the movie, he actually dies in the yes, book. So yes. apparently I'm going to make the inference that they loved him so much they decided he needed to live and so they could use him again in some of the sequels. I think that they just love the character yes. because in The Lost World, Malcolm's alive mm-hmm. in that book. So is he alive because they kept him alive in the movie or is he alive because he was such a popular character in the right, book? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I do know I saw at one point that they pushed Michael Crichton to make the sequel because, yes, this was so popular that the success with Jurassic Park in the movie caused him to push Lost World. So so he obviously had all of these things that he could consider as he was writing it. Yeah. Well, I think the most famous scene of Ian Malcolm. (laughs) You're going to say the shirt, aren't you? Is the shirt. (laughs) Or lack of shirt. Lack of shirt. I mean, all kinds of memes about this, but we're all picturing it, right? Yeah. Jeff Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm. He's reclining there. His shirt is wide open after being injured by the T-Rex. I think I even wrote in my notes when I rewatched it, like, Jeff, why? Why is your shirt (laughs) even open? How is this helping you? He has a few comments about it. Okay, tell me. Yes. So remember, his leg is broken. Yes. There is no reason for his shirt to be open. open. And so Jeff Goldblum, everybody's asked him about this, I'm sure, again and again over the years. So here are a few quotes. He says, it wasn't in the script. It had nothing to do with my character. 
character. It had nothing to do with the movie. I don't know. It just happened somehow. (laughs) I'll give you another quote from him in just a second. But first, I need to tell you this. Did you see back in 2018 that they built a statue in London that is him? No. Yes. Laying out, exactly recreating that pose, staring seductively from the banks of the River Tomb across the, the Tower Bridge. And they erected it at Potter's Field Park. It was done by the subscription service Now TV to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Steven Spielberg's 1993 movie. Well, at least there was a reason. It was 25 feet tall, weighed over 330 pounds, took six weeks to produce, 250 hours to make, and it was just there for like a short time. Okay, so it's not still there. No, it's gone. Okay. So again, why so popular? Here's another thought from Jeff. It's supposed to be Costa Rica, right? So things are hot and I'm sure I'm in some sort of fever. Oh my so gosh. all the logic is that we got to get some of these wet clothes oh off immediately. Gosh. As I remember, I don't think anybody fought me on that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Yes. Okay. So we're going to put that photo of that yes. statue. Have you seen the meme where they, where they mix up where Dr. Grant is listening to the Triceratops breathing and they put it over top of him listening to Jeff Goldblum's heart? <laughs> Well, if I could find that, I'll put that up too. It's ridiculous. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about the character that you relate the most to, I think. Lex. Yes. One of the first people considered for the role was Christina Ricci. Oh. But they did not go that way. I I think I've heard you tell me just in personal conversation that you've thought it was because they were going for somebody not very well known and maybe she was already... Oh, maybe. I don't remember knowing about Christina, but I may have. What I learned in the visual history book is that the little boy that played Tim Mm -hmm. tried out for Hook Mm -hmm. and he did not get that role. And Steven said, don't worry, I got something else for you. So because he was so small for his age, they actually swapped. Mm -hmm. and made it an older sister and made Tim the younger brother because it was supposed to be the other way around. And I think she just screamed the best. Yes, I actually have that quote. It said that Ariana Richards won the part because, here's the quote, I was called into a casting office and they just wanted me to scream. I heard later on that Stephen had watched a few girls on tape that day and I was the only one who ended up waking his sleeping wife off the couch and she came running through the hallway to see if the kids were all right. There you go. So that's how she got the part. She's an excellent screamer too. That one, especially that one where the T-Rex does his foot in the mud and she turns her head to the side and she's like, (laughs) That was good. Yeah, she looks stricken better than any child actor I've seen, except maybe Millie Bobby Brown. Yeah. (laughs) She's stricken very well. Yeah, she is. She was really good. And, you know, I saw what you shared about Joseph Mazzella, who got the part of Tim, that because he didn't get cast in Hook, Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg had promised him. He said, you know, you're too young for this one, but he promised to get him in another movie. Mm -hmm. And Joseph had commented, like wow yeah if, if you're gonna get put a in consolation movie, prize here's this is a one great one yeah. yes exactly so we've kind of hit on the main characters have you been seeing in the news just like in the last week or two as the three main leads used to call them the legacy characters as they've been doing these interviews have you seen all the uh, traffic i guess about the age controversy yes now this book says she was 25 the book that I've referenced, she was 23. She was 23. So my, I got to give a shout out to my cousin, Lauren, who made the funniest joke. She said, that's the most unbelievable part of this whole film. Not the dinosaurs. The fact that a 23-year-old was already an accomplished paleobotanist. <laughs> right? Like, how did she get through college? With and a do PhD. All, with a PhD. Yes. That's the most unbelievable element. Yes. I mean, this has been all, I mean, as I was doing my research, it was article after article, quote after quote about uh-huh. this controversy because Laura Dern, as you just said, was only 23, 
Sam Neill was, depending on the source, they said 42, 43. So there's a 20-year age gap. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're they're shown to be in love. They're they're a couple. They're supposed to be colleagues. Like they have been working together. And so Sam Neill was the one who said that it came across his radar about this gap. And this is something that more recently came to his attention. He said that he opened a magazine and there was an article called Old Geezers and Gals. (laughs) Oh, no. And it showed people like Harrison Ford and Sean Connery acting with much younger people. And he said, quote, and there I was on the list. I thought, come on, it can't be true. Laura Dern, she jumped in and said it felt completely appropriate at the time to fall in love with Sam Neill. Who didn't fall in love with Sam Neill? And she said, quote, and it was only now when we returned in a moment of cultural awareness about the patriarchy that I was like, wow, we're not the same age. Yeah, I completely thought they were the same age. Kirk and I were talking about it last night as we were doing the rewatch. And we both agreed. I mean, she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. She looks amazing. But she did not look 23. Like, I never thought anything about it. That girl is like, looks 30, 35, Mm -hmm. looks accomplished and and nothing negative about it. She just looks not 23. Like, I I didn't think a thing about it. It's like, uh, I don't, it doesn't bother me. Well, and then she and Jeff got together and he's between 14 to 15 years older than she is. They were dating by 1995. Yeah. And the movie came out in 1993. Yeah. So, yeah, not a big deal. Well, before we move on to another reason behind the success of Jurassic Park, should we take a little break? Let's do it. It's time for our June giveaway. For a chance to win your very own Scandal Water t-shirt, simply visit our Scandal Water podcast Facebook page and share the post labeled June giveaway. The winner will be announced on June 30th. Cheers! And we are back to discuss another reason behind the success of Jurassic Park, which is obviously the dinosaurs and the special effects. That same article that I've referenced a couple times already, the Looper article from January of 2022, had this quote. There are plenty of explanations for the phenomenal success of the original movie. There's Spielberg, of course, delivering his first monster movie since Jaws, a magnificent score from frequent Spielberg collaborator John Williams, groundbreaking CGI effects that still blow people away almost 30 years later Mm -hmm. and well it is dinosaurs after all tapping into something primal in all of us something everybody remembers being obsessed with at some point in their childhood yep so Jurassic Park has been called one of the most influential movies ever in terms of special effects in one of the articles I was reading they they kind of explored that question why you know why has it held up so well thinking about the fact that these special effects were done in 1993. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about two or three different reasons. But the first one, I think, is something that we've talked about before. I know we have with Jaws. The fact that in some cases it's held up well because they refrained from showing us the dinosaurs. Right. They used all those suspense techniques to make us anticipate, to make us worried about, you know, what is it going to be like to build up the, uh, the anticipation and the fear. Right. And that was actually one of the reasons why they think that that it's held up so well. I have another quote here from the the book I keep referencing. Spielberg wasn't convinced that visual effects were advanced enough to realize Jurassic Park. Instead, he had other ideas, remembered Kathleen Kennedy. Stephen turned to me and very simply said, I want full-size dinosaurs on the set and I want them to be able to run. Not even Spielberg's past experiences on Jaws, which we talked about mm-hmm. at length, a production marred by a mechanical shark that repeatedly malfunctioned, deterred him. Mm-hmm. Stephen said, I tried very hard not to let evolve 
evolving technology or devolving technology on Jaws stop me from considering mechanical dinosaurs, he says. When I was thinking about full-size dinosaurs, the one saving grace was, well, we weren't going to be in the ocean. We were going to be on dry land, and maybe that would give us a leg up. Kennedy wasn't about to argue. I just turned around and said, great, all right, let me see what I can do. <laughs> so they actually only had 14 to 15 minutes of dinosaur visual effects in the entire movie. They did it two different ways. Of those 14 to 15 minutes of dinosaurs, it was either through computer CGI, mm -hmm. which was groundbreaking at that time. We're going to talk about that in a second. Or through the animatronics, which were also amazing. And that's where those mechanical dinosaurs that you're talking about came in. Mm -hmm. So an article for Business Insider talked about the special effects in Jurassic Park. Here's a quote from that. While computer animation was used in Star Wars and Tron and in title sequences like 1978's Superman, it wasn't until Terminator 2 in 1991 and Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park 1993 that a movie used lots of computer generated imagery or CGI and mixed it with live action. Mm -hmm. So this was the first ever film to incorporate both CGI and animatronics into mm -hmm. a live action movie. And that's part of why the finished film was critically acclaimed for being so innovative with both. Yes, and yeah. that actually led to an ad lib that they added into the script. When they saw the CGI dinosaurs, the people working on the, the puppetry said, ah, I think we're out of a job. <laughs> so when they're walking up the stairs, you'll notice that when Grant and Malcolm see that, he says, I think we're out of a job. And Ian Malcolm says, don't you mean extinct? So ah, that led to the nice. puppetry versus CGI is what led to that little exchange. I love that. So again, this is where I'm going to pause and say, this is what impresses me to think about what Spielberg was doing with Schindler's List mm -hmm. and still going, you know what? Let's do both animatronics mm -hmm. and CGI mm -hmm. over here with Jurassic Park. I mean, it's just amazing to me. So I read this whole article that did a how-to, like it was the how-to behind the CGI animation of Jurassic Park. And it was unbelievable. This was a very complicated thing. I'm being very superficial in my coverage here. But one of the examples of where they use CGI was the scene where the T-Rex is chasing the Jeep. And this Business Insider article described this process that went from taking initial drawings, having to load them into a computer, using software to figure out joint placement, rigging up this thing called wireframes that they used in the computer to give the dinosaur structure, then another program to add the skin, then massive graphic computers where they had to try to combine all the separate images together, then this whole process called compositing to put the dinosaur in a scene that involves live action scenes with actors and yeah. background and foreground imagery, all those things, and then finally when you get that right and check it, then having to put the scene into a film. Yeah. This was such a complicated process. It was a really interesting article, but the title of the article was How Four Minutes of CGI Dinosaurs in Jurassic Park took a year to make. I don't doubt it. So this is why it was so groundbreaking. Yeah. And it, and it was amazing. As I did the rewatch last night, I watched that scene. And of course, I could see the CGI, mm -hmm. but I was also impressed thinking of what it took to do yes. the however many minutes that little scene was. Yeah. But they talked about how challenging it was for the actors. I know we've all heard about this, but but just to think about it again, when you're in a CGI scene and pretending to see something that's not there, yes. you know, that's incredibly challenging. And then in the moment, they didn't have the dinosaurs roar. So they said that Steven Spielberg would be, you know, standing there yelling through his bullhorn, uh -huh. trying to like give them sounds and different things. But in the meantime, sound design actually, I think won a, an Oscar, but the sound design team had to come up with the 
sound of the T-Rex's oh, roar, yes. which to come up with that roar, the sound design team ended up mixing together a dog, penguin, tiger snarl, alligator's gurgle, and a baby elephant's squeal. Yes, I had a quote about that from the book, and they said they were trying to give them personalities. Mm-hmm. So in the book, it said that it was actually an elephant, alligator growl, the lion and tiger roar, and the baby elephant. So he went to a zoo, and he's recording, and this baby elephant lets out the scream, and he uh. only did it twice, and he never made another peep. Wow. So you want to get more samples if you can, but that's all he got from this baby elephant. But that they wanted the T-Rex to have this personality of it is single-minded. I am the king. I will find you. So the sniffing and breathing was mm. really important. And they used a whale's breathing through the blowholes for that, oh, the cool. sniffing and breathing. And the baby elephant scream was that final touch. Now the raptors were more about the personality. Like they had cleverness and deep thoughts yes, and things yes. like that. And I didn't get to write down what those noises were, but I was fascinated by the T-Rex. Me too. Mm. Yes. One last thought about CGI before we move to the animatronics was that, again, these articles gave credit to Steven Spielberg and this team that worked on Jurassic Park for pioneering this technology that ended up taking off. People realized that you could bring to life on screen nearly anything from monsters to aliens to people who passed away a long time ago. Mm. You know, they started using this CGI for, for all kinds of stuff. The other technology that we've already mentioned was these animatronic dinosaurs. And for that... Steven Spielberg brought on board the legendary Stan Winston. Mm -hmm. He had seen Winston's work on James Cameron's 1986 film Aliens because Stan Winston had helped to create that queen alien. But uh, Stan ends up saying in one interview, there was just no comparison in the difficulty level of building that alien queen and building a full-size dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the T-Rex when it was finished, weighed 9,000 to 12,000 pounds. And along with some of the other animatronic dinosaurs, it said in this one article that it took up to 20 puppeteers to control them. Again, to make them, they had to start with conceptual drawings. They had to build the metal skeletons that were powered by hydraulics and electric motors. Then they sculpted full-size dinosaurs with clay, molded you know, the sculpture, and had to use foam latex skin for the robot. The latex skin was fitted over the animatronics then they painted it and I mean it was this whole process. I have a quote for you from that book it says nine artists labored for 16 weeks to complete the T-Rex using scaffolding to access the enormous Mm. creatures higher areas. The T-Rex was so big it was as if each artist was working in their own little island says Mahan who was responsible for ensuring the artist gave the sculpted skin a consistent look. We developed all sorts of techniques working with this clay that are the standards in the industry now adds Rosengrant. By thinning out the clay and to a slurry mixture, we were able to paint on small dots and texture to the sculpture, which had never been done before, achieving another layer of detail. Amazing what these people did. Back to what you're pointing about the size of it. It said some dinosaurs, including the T-Rex, were so big and heavy that they were a safety hazard and everybody had to be warned if it was about to move. Yeah. But the T-Rex malfunctioned. Of course it did. With water. Right? Yes. He said, at least we're not going to be in the ocean. And then he put him in a rainstorm. (laughs) And they put him in a rainstorm. And it would cause the T-Rex, the water getting in its parts. I can't even, Candy. I cannot even. Can you imagine? No, I I can and I cannot. If that thing 
was shuddering. They said the, the it would absorb. It was like the mm-hmm. sponge, and it started shuddering and moving on its own. I would I would be like, I'm done. I'll I, be in my trailer. Yeah. I'd be like that little guy from Jaws. I'm not coming out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, you're just standing there, and this massive T-Rex starts, starts to, to shudder shake. and shake. No, yes. thank you. Yeah. They had to blow dry and use hand towels to finally yeah. dry it out yes. and stop the shaking. Yes, and sometimes when he would hit the car, his teeth would fall out, so they'd have to put his teeth back yeah. in. <laughs> there was a picture I saw of one of the teeth missing because oh, it had come down on the car. <gasps> That's awesome. Oh, and also, FYI, that little plexiglass was not supposed to break. Oh, really? I mean, it was supposed to it was supposed to cave in. Come loose. Come but... loose, but if you'll notice, there's one part where it shatters because the head was so heavy and it hit it. Sincere fear from me. I can if imagine. I was the, I'm, I'm positive it was probably stunt doubles in there, but if it was really the kids, I'd be whoever like, was in there. whoever was in there, I'd be like, I, I, I am quitting. I quit yeah. this industry. I no, do, thank you. I do not trust your however I, many ton dinosaur. Yes, because they said if the, yeah. if the thing clamped shut, it would crush someone. They of had to make sure would. that the oh. teeth would not clamp shut. The jaws had to have some kind of um, safety measure where they wouldn't clamp shut. That's crazy. Gosh. Well, for the T-Rex, they not only had to have the full-scale dinosaur, but they had another one just of the T-Rex head mm-hmm. so that they could pull in for like those really close-up shots. So it's craziness. Now, going back to that point we made, only 14 or 15 minutes of dinosaurs in this two-hour movie. I think that's okay. I, I think that's really okay. Mm-hmm, and I, I am over the moon excited about the next iteration, but I'm a little worried that it's going to become more about dinosaurs and action and it's mm-hmm. going to be less character development, which is what made this first one so endearing to me. Sam Neill agrees with you because in one of his quotes, he talked about the fact that I think you don't actually see the T-Rex until something like 45 minutes into the film mm-hmm. and and you don't even see the T-Rex first, you hear it. Yes. And he talked about how audiences today don't have the same patience. No, they don't. And that Mm-mm. the more recent movies have to start immediately mm-hmm. with action mm-hmm. and with some of these scenes where anticipation and suspense and tension Usually were so what they'll much do is they'll, Well, Jurassic they kind of did that the in original. this too. They started with a, a, an attack you know the raptor attacks that one fella and then we start with the story but yeah. now they have a serious attack they have a whole action sequence and then we take it back and start with our characters and things like that one last quote came from one of my sources it says you hear the t-rex first and the article says as alfred hitchcock said there is no terror in the bang only in the anticipation of it and so he references spielberg and says spielberg often spoke of the craft of suspense where he preached the power of anticipation over shock Spielberg knew he could either get a few seconds of a shocking big T-Rex reveal Mm -hmm. or several minutes of the anticipation of what is to come by introducing the threat with teasing sounds and subtle environmental changes. All of these reasons and more are why fans always say that no other dinosaurs in movie history look and sound as real as they do in Jurassic Park. Yes. So uh, I feel like this is going to be a power episode, Ashley. We are, we, we have, we have a lot to say. Size. Yeah. I'll touch on this last one very quickly. A fourth reason behind the wonder of Jurassic Park are the Steven Spielberg touches. We've already yeah. said some of them, yeah. but you know, he just does some of his own things that just make something special. So one of the things we've already mentioned is that he did deviate purposefully from the novel for effect. He knew what would play well to this broad 
broader audience, this audience of people who wanted to sit in a theater and have that entertainment right in front of them. And so he made some decisions. And one of those was that he changed, we've already said, Ian Malcolm's character, but he also changed John Hammond. Yes, I'm so glad he did. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad he did. Yeah, in the book, Hammond was cold-blooded. He was awful. He was terrible. He was all about making money. He cut corners in his park. I mean, he didn't care really about his grandkids or anybody. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. So in the movie version of Jurassic Park, they mentioned this person, the author of this article, called Spielberg someone who really cared about humanism. And so they made the comment that they felt like John Hammond was changed to put him more in line with Spielberg's signature humanism. And so according to a biography written by Joseph McBride, he said that the director, Steven Spielberg, deeply identified with Hammond's showmanship. Mm. He thought that Spielberg had the scriptwriter change Hammond to be much warmer, much friendlier, so that he would be closer to Steven Spielberg's own outlook and temperament. And so part of it was the intentional casting of Richard Attenborough, who Mm -hmm. brought that grandfatherly, you know, He brought it out of retirement, acting Mm -hmm. retirement, yep. But was also a director himself. Yes, I thought this was really nice. He was working on, I think it was Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. He was working on post-production, Richard Attenborough was. Mm -hmm. So he needed to be in London to do the music and the uh, dubbing and Spielberg. Spielberg said, I'm going to put it in your contract that we will work around. Tell us when you need to be back in London and we will work around it. And he was like, how kind is that? I want to give you this one quote uh, talking about the screenplay. This is kind of backing it up a little. This absolutely fascinated me as someone who has written things to have this kind of "Ah, do what you want with it. Mm -hmm. So Crichton had the first dibs at writing the screenplay and he did it and it was it was okay, but it still wasn't what Stephen was looking for. Mm -hmm. And it says when Crichton turned in his draft, Spielberg recognized its strengths, but was also aware it needed work, as most first drafts do. I always knew Michael was a good screenwriter because all his books are like movies, Spielberg says. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to push it a bit further. And Michael was happy to say, I've taken my best shot. I'm kind of written out on the screenplay front. I have another book I want to write. So you can do anything you want with (sighs) it. I mean, hello. Wow. What trust is it? Yes. To say, I'm done. You know, I've written my dinosaur stuff. I'm done. Do whatever you want with it. Make it whatever you think it needs to be. As a person who's written, I cannot imagine relinquishing that kind of control. That is incredible trust. That makes me think about what you said about how far back their relationship went and how close they were. And also seeing Steven Spielberg's work. I think if you see what he produces, that helps to... That would help the trust. Yeah. Well, going back to John Hammond just briefly, they said that in the movie, he ends up being far more concerned about his grandkids. He also views the park as more an act of philanthropy. It's kind of a gift to the world rather than just something that makes him money. And then at the end, it's very different because he he kind of basically denounces the park along with everybody else. And in this article, they phrase it that he is left as a chastened humanitarian rather than a callous capitalist. Right, because Grant says, after much thought, I've decided not to endorse your park. And he says, so have I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he lives because in yes. the book, he is killed. Like in copies. Fact, yes. And he's kind of a grisly little death. Yeah. Very creepy. Ooh. But they didn't want that to go to waste. So they ended up giving that death that happens in the book to a different character in Lost World. 
Ah. They killed somebody else the same way that, that he was supposed to have died. Super gross. Now, here's one other thing I'll bring out in terms of that Steven Spielberg touch. They changed the final scene. This is a quote from one of the sources talking about how Steven was shuffling, you know, the two different projects were going back and forth. He says, as you can imagine, shooting Schindler's List and Jurassic Park at the same time, rolling from one physical production into another was exhausting. Yeah. Spielberg had to have Jurassic Park perfectly mapped out for this to work. But when it came to the end of the movie, he wasn't so sure he liked what was in the screenplay. Okay, so what happened was, in the original version, they had the Velociraptors chasing the leads, and mm-hmm. they were defeated by Grant, Dr. Grant, oh. who was in a crane. And Dr. Grant was supposed to knock a dinosaur skeleton into them, and then John Hammond would use a shotgun to, to get rid of the rest. Okay, they even have the storyboards in the DVD extras for the film. Very cool. But they said when Spielberg came in, you know, and to, to try to set up for the shooting of that scene, it didn't feel right to him. Mm-hmm. And he was convinced that it wasn't going to work. A quote from the assistant director, John Kretschmer, during their 25th anniversary Q&A was, Stephen came to us when we were in the middle of the sequence and said, I think we have to bring the T-Rex back. The audience is going to want to see the T-Rex. And that caused them to have to scramble and oh change gosh. everything at the oh last minute. This assistant director said that their special effects genius, Michael Lantieri, had to rig the physical effects for this new ending in something like 24 hours, oh totally off the cuff. And Steven Spielberg took it upon himself to go find the actors and kind of reset everything. Here's oh, how it's going to work now. Okay. Let's set all the new marks. And then what resulted was what we see today. I like it. Which, by the way, they also had to pull in, they had to do the CGI because they have now, the ending that you see now has a mostly CGI dinosaur saving Grant and the others as they exit the park. They still have the skeleton fall, Mm -hmm. but they say this time it's part of their escape. Yes, yes. And that's another thing from Crazy Nate. He says, if you look, the raptor actually disappears for like a millisecond because (laughs) the CGI just didn't render or something. So it's like a little blank area. And I always thought that it was kind of a tribute to bringing a baby when they come out and the, if anybody's seen the old film with Cary Grant and and Catherine Hepburn, there's this giant, I think it was a, I don't even remember what dinosaur it was, so I'm not going to guess, but there's this giant dinosaur skeleton and Catherine Hepburn's character causes it to just fall apart, (laughs) kind of like it does in Jurassic Park. Awesome. Well... We've kind of wrapped up the four points that I wanted to to bring up in terms of some reasons or some factors behind the incredible success and the incredible performance that was Jurassic Park. But just one quick little side note. Did you hear about the gift that Steven Spielberg gave to the leads at the end? No, I didn't. He gave them full-size Velociraptor models that he signed. What? Yeah. Where would you put that? Well, if you're Jeff Goldblum. Oh, gosh. Quote from him. I built a whole wing onto my house just to house it. Imagine, if you will, an Uh open space. I got some marble. Well, it's faux painted. There's a light that shines on it, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what it's like. And so this person interviewing him asked if it was still in his home today. And he he responded, it better be. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this was a more I can imagine him interview. creating some kind of jungle atmosphere and, and painting like all the motif and putting it up that way. That sounds like something he would do. Yeah, amazing. All right, so the impact. We'll do this kind of quickly. We've already talked about the impact on CGI and, and technology, but let's talk about 
how the films were received. So both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List hit theaters less than six months apart in 1993. Jurassic Park came out in June and its release put it in line to make, of course, the big bucks for the summer box office. And it did. <laughs> it earned more than $404 million in the U.S., grossed nearly $1.1 billion worldwide, Ooh. and remains among the 50 top grossing movies ever. It's awesome. It won three Academy Awards, the three for which it was nominated, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. Mm. But because Steven Spielberg had doubled up on the two films, his Schindler's List, which premiered in late November and December of 1993, and then continued into 1994, it put it in line for it to also be up for the same awards oh, um, no. that same year. Okay. And so, again, he was up for the 1994 Academy Awards, and that movie earned 12 nominations and won in seven categories. Wow. Everything from John Williams for the original score, Best Adapted Screenplay, several technical categories, and it was the best picture for Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and his first ever Oscar for Best Director. I'm imagining that he is very, very glad he won for that one. Yeah. They said that Jurassic Park led to an immediate increase in interest in both dinosaurs and the field of paleontology as a career. Mm. And Laura Dern has talked about how she felt that her role has had a great impact on girls and they're going into some of the science and, and technology careers. She said, quote, now generations of kids or families connect to these characters. For me, to have women who have been inspired by Ellie Sattler, that's an amazing feeling. It is great because she's not just his girlfriend. Yeah. You know, she's got so much agency and she does so much adventurous, brave, wonderful things. She even is the one that goes into the danger. She walks mm -hmm. headfirst into the danger. Yeah, I love that because she's not only not just a girlfriend, like that's kind of the side thing. Yeah. Like she it's is not a the focus. No, she is a character who is there to move that plot forward yes. and to help save people in this situation she compared herself in terms of kind of older movies that had strong females she compared herself to Sigourney Weaver's Ripley role in okay. the Alien franchise you know and she felt like both of these two characters have kind of kind of had a role in changing things for how women were portrayed especially in terms of action heroes and a final quote from Laura Dern it's really moving a lot of women in tech and science point to a similarity between Ellie's heroism and women in their field mm. yeah Okay, well, so you were actually the person, Ashley, who pointed out to me how the trilogy's laid out, because I will tell you that I'm just the person who's like, oh, hey, a new Jurassic yeah. Park movie, I'm going to go see it, and I kind of see them as their separate, isolated mm -hmm. Films, but you shared with me that no, actually, we kind of had a trilogy of the original Jurassic Park movies, mm -hmm. which of course I've now looked up and I see how they're mm -hmm. all connected. And then we have a trilogy mm -hmm. of the more recent Jurassic World, Jurassic World movies. Mm -hmm. As we've said, after Jurassic Park was so popular, Crichton was being pressured to create a new movie. He published the novel Lost World in 1995, and two years later, Spielberg had turned it into the movie The Lost World Jurassic. Jurassic Park, which was in in the phrasing of this one author, an incredibly loose adaptation <laughs> very, of, very loose. of Crichton's book because they changed it up all over the place. Jeff Goldblum returned to play Malcolm, and here is the summary. Four years after the total catastrophe in Jurassic Park, the now humbled entrepreneur John Hammond wants to study the progress of the prehistoric living relics that roam free on the secluded island of Isla Sorna, Engines Dino Engineering Site B. 
be. Mm-hmm. Reluctantly, Dr. Ian Malcolm joins the expedition in the reptile-infested locale, along with his paleontologist girlfriend, Sarah Harding, the documentarian, Nick Van Owen, and the tech expert, Eddie Carr. Unbeknownst to them, Hammond's nephew, Peter, is hell-bent on capturing a wide array of primeval species for his San Diego prehistoric zoo. However, who can harness the raw strength of the ultimate apex predator, the T-Rex? Mm. Yeah. Although... Was that the book summary? That was from IMDb. Okay, so that was a film. Uh, he was, uh, what does it say, regretfully or something? He joined it regretfully? Reluctantly. Reluctantly. He was reluctant, but it wasn't with Sarah Harding. He went because Sarah was already there. Oh. That's why he made the choice to go, because she had already pieced out and gone over there and not told him. So he went ah, to rescue her. Nice. Okay, thank you for that clarification, mm-hmm. because sometimes summaries could have errors. So after that movie, the final movie in that trilogy was 2001's Jurassic Park 3. In this one, we see the return of Alan Grant, who is hired by a wealthy couple to organize a flying tour over Isla Sorna in exchange for funding his paleontology research because money had dried up after the advent of cloned dinosaurs. But unfortunately for Dr. Grant, the trip wasn't actually a simple flyover, but rather a rescue mission for the couple's son who had become lost on the island. The couple's son and her boyfriend, I believe. I think they were estranged and Mm -hmm. this was... I I haven't seen that one in a long time, but I think that they were romantically involved. They did some kind of parasailing over the Mm -hmm. island and the parasail, he died, but the little boy lived. Ah. They didn't know that at the time. But You're bringing memories back as you tell yeah, me these yeah. things. <laughs> okay, well, for the second trilogy, Jurassic World came out in 2015, starring Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt, and it takes place 22 years after the events of Jurassic Park. Isna Nublar now features a park that is open for business. It also boasts hybrid dinosaurs, those that have been created with the genes of multiple species, mm-hmm. which, of course, is a bad thing. And Very like, bad thing. <laughs> like clockwork, power goes out in the park. Park, and it becomes another disaster. And they said at the end, it's okay to give spoilers from 2015, I would think so, I'm assuming. Yeah. At the end, we see Dr. Henry Wu escaping Jurassic World with DNA samples and dinosaur embryos intact. And of course, we now know that he's going to be more villainous and mm-hmm. he's going to be coming back. In Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom, which came out in 2018, we have this summary from IMDb. Three years after the Jurassic World theme park was closed down, Owen and Claire returned to Isla Nublar to save the dinosaurs when they learned that a once dormant volcano on the island is active and is threatening to extinguish all life there. Along the way, Owen sets out to find Blue, his lead raptor, and discovers a conspiracy that could disrupt the natural order of the entire planet. Life has found a way again. And next week, we get to interview Jack, who's been referenced several times, our friend that we met through that mm-hmm. pot of Jack tea and interview. Jack will be back. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about the final movie in that trilogy. He's going to give us some of the behind the scenes His NDA will and, be expired. And... <laughs> <laughs> but Jurassic World Dominion is the movie that we will be discussing. And the very brief summary on IMDb was, four years after the destruction of Isla Nublar, dinosaurs now now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. This fragile balance will reshape the world and determine once and for all whether human beings are to remain the apex predators on a planet they now share with history's most fearsome creatures in a new era. And the big news, of course, is, as we've already alluded, the three original leads for the first time ever yes. will all return to be in this movie alongside Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt. 
that. And so this is supposed to close the circle yeah. and also just kill the box office, oh, yeah. you know, because they're expecting just record-breaking sales. And they asked on the Today Show, Savannah Guthrie asked Chris Pratt, is this Jurassic World Dominion really the end? And Chris Pratt's response was, I really do think it's the end. Yeah, you got the legacy cast back. Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, plus the cast of Jurassic World. All our storylines converging in a way that is very much a finale. 30 years in the making. This is the sixth Jurassic film and it's the end of this franchise. But I think it's not going to be the end of the dinosaur movies. I think right. they'll go into like the Cretaceous period or something else. Uh, I think it'll be the end of their stories right. and they will move on with a different cast and different because my goodness, why in the world would you stop? You wouldn't. You would not. No, no. But it will bring this to a close. Yes. Yeah. This story will come to a close. Armchair Psychologist. Okay, well, we have covered a lot of fascinating information about Jurassic Park. For our armchair, though, I'm sure there are some things we did not hit upon that you would like to discuss. So I'm just going to open it up. Oh, open What the floor. else would you like to talk about, Ashley? Oh, my goodness. Well, how about I just go through my notes of when I rewatch the film? Okay. That tends to be where my fandom is just with the, partic- the film in particular. So I'm just going to kind of, they're going to be a little, a few of my thoughts while I was rewatching, if that's okay. That is perfectly great. Okay, I kind of talked about the opening of Jaws, how you first heard the music. That's also what happens in Jurassic Mm -hmm. Park. There's a thump of a music and the titles, and the thump is in sync with the titles coming up. And Ah. I just love that as an editor. Mm -hmm. I love that little detail. It it really brings you in right away. The font choice, the jungle noises, uh, you're there. Yeah. I said, Muldoon is just amazing. I love his clothing, the the, the lighting, the fog of that opening scene, the introduction to danger. You Mm -hmm. just have it all in the first few minutes. You're supposed to when you write something, get straight to the danger, and they did it. Yeah. This is just a little my observation. Uh, Brian and I have talked about it. The fall by Gennaro, when he's walking through and he slips and falls, that had to be accidental. And they just kept it in the film because it worked so so real. Yeah, it was so real. Yes humanizing these characters yes Mm -hmm. and i loved how they let Gennaro and i don't remember the name of the other character who was in the mind but they let them tell us their backstory we find out the backstory about alan ellie and Mm -hmm. hammond with the lawyer we know that hammond's with his daughter because she's getting a divorce we find out who alan and ellie are it's just all right there yeah very natural without that exposition Mm -hmm. yeah very interwoven so flawlessly yeah and i talked about this at the top of the episode but what i really love is alan grant's arc with the children he goes from let's say it emotionally and mentally abusing that child where he talks about that you are alive when they start to eat you and this little kid's like okay have (laughs) have some respect okay i got it and then he talks about them being noisy messy expensive and they smell to being the primary caregiver Mm -hmm. to lex and tim and saying i'm not gonna leave you when she says he left us he left us he says but that's not what i'm gonna do right and and he doesn't even want to hold lex's hand yes when he doesn't (laughs) want to ride in the car with tim he does she holds his hand and he let's go of it. I mean, that's just, that's huge for me. Mm-hmm. I made the note, everybody has a price. They're like, we can't make it to your island. We can't make it to your island. I'm going to fund your dig for a further three years. They're like, when do we leave? So <laughs> everybody has a price. And the humor. There's, yeah. there's so many places where yeah. they have that wonderful humor. They in do. The whip topping on the pie where Nedry takes the shaving cream and then puts it on the pie for the other person. That's one of those little Spielberg <laughs> touches. One thing that Gennaro says is one of the mistakes. He says his line backwards. He says in 
24 hours, meaning the investors, if they're not convinced, I'm not convinced. How in 24 hours would the investors be convinced? Because Gennaro is the representative. It should be in 24 hours. If I'm not convinced, they're mm. not convinced. He says it backwards. Mm, that's interesting. And my favorite scene is when they see that beautiful Brachiosaurus. And, and just think about it. They are looking at nothing. Right. And they are acting their little hearts out. Yes. I thought about that too, because of all the reading about the CGI. And I, as I'm watching it, I'm like, look at them and the amazing wonder they are conveying, tearing up. I mean, yes. almost like, I mean, emotion as they're just staring off into nothingness. And I remember a long time ago, I heard the trivia that there's this one scene where they are walking and they look up at the Brachiosaur and it's this, you can, they're so far on the ground that I think Stephen had to lay on the ground with a handheld camera, the perspective that he mm -hmm. was wanting where they would later put that dinosaur. The dino DNA segment, exposition junction. It's just like... <laughs> Dino DNA. Okay, this is the scene where you can go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I like it when Hammond says that the animal's imprint, if you notice, Grant points to himself. When yes, the I did see that. I totally saw like, that. Look at me, look at yes. me, imprint on me. But he doesn't know it's a raptor yet. Again, why did they breed raptors? Why did they breed the T-Rex? And he's like, you bred raptors? Yeah, why? Why not just make mm -hmm. it an island of herbivores? That's an excellent question. But you know what? Let's go back just for just a second. When you talked about the little show that as they were going through Dino the theme DNA. park, and they mm -hmm. did the whole dino DNA. I literally kind of stepped out of my viewership and, and analyzed that for just a second. How clever is that, that Steven Spielberg and his team realized we've got to get the science yeah. in here. The audience does need to know this. Yeah. Super complicated in Michael Crichton's novel. How are we going to make this friendly and accessible for kids, for adults, for these people who have no science background and mm -hmm. also do it super quickly? I thought it was so smart the way that they did that because they made it fun, but you figured it out. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Another thing, approaching the T-Rex paddock that location is so lush and we talked about it with Jaws these places that they film are part of the character yeah. of this this yes. film when Ellie Sattler says dinosaurs eat man woman inherits the earth yeah. if you look at Alan Grant he turns and looks at her with such an affectionate smile Aww. Ian looks at her like hey but Alan's like that's my girl yeah. that's all you can think he's thinking and I love Hammond's so this is now that you've said that Hammond is kind of based on Steven Spielberg's personality I love Hammond's quiet hatred of Malcolm <laughs> so I'm wondering, oh, I wonder who Stephen hated because he's like, I really hate that man. <laughs> and they just don't get along the whole time. Oh, 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 here's another one. Never in the history of movies has anyone ever stayed here when asked to do so. You know, mm. the, when they come up to the Triceratops, Grant goes, stay here. And you automatically know. They're not going to yeah, stay here. Never stay in there. the history of Never. movies has anyone ever stayed. That's they're like, don't, true. don't come. You stay here. Stay safe. No, no, we won't have a movie if they stay here. <laughs> okay. Here's something about the outfits. The outfits I thought were so well thought out. Ian wears all black because he thinks it's literally cooler. And even though it's super hot. And they said right. that in this book that I was quoting from, they said that Ian wanted to add that leather jacket, even though it would be even hotter. And oh. they said, no, he said, I take full responsibility for being hot. I'm going to wear it anyway. And he did because that was, part of that's how that was part of his character development mm -hmm. yeah ellie is in shorts because in the book her specific character trait is gorgeous legs ah. which a little like but she's talked about how pretty her legs are so she's in those shorts I, here's something I like about Malcolm, his heroics. He's the first one to say, are the kids okay? Because yeah. kids get scared. And then later, he, Jeff Goldblum, actually wanted to add in the part where he gets the flair. He was supposed to just run and just abandon everybody, kind of like oh. Gennaro did. But he said, no, 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 I want to be heroic. So he takes the flair and leads the T-Rex away. And also, when they're in the Jeep with that CGI Tyrannosaurus that you were talking about earlier, when the Tyrannosaurus lunges at them, he actually throws his arm over Ellie and puts himself in front of her. 
I had not noticed these things. I mean, I, I mean, I had noticed. I just didn't register. Yeah, I like that because he comes across as being a the little swagger. Yes, he's got swagger. He's a little flippant, but down deep, he's he's got those noble characteristics. Yes. And he was also smart because he was the character over and over again who kept foreshadowing and predicting yes. what was going to happen. Boy, do I hate being yeah. right all the time. Yeah, he says that. Yeah. The water in the cup. We didn't mention that, but that was the hardest shot. Oh. You know, the little the vibrations, and they got it mm-hmm. from a guitar string. I like how they put the kids in danger. Well, I don't like that the kids are in danger, but for the aspect of vulnerability, the kids are the ones in danger first. Mm-hmm. They're the first ones that get attacked by the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. So that makes you really, really want to root for them. You root for the humans instead of the T-Rex because the kids, they're always after those poor kids, even in the kitchen. The kids are the mm-hmm. ones being attacked. And it also brings out, if you're a little older, if you're, you know, unless you're a child, it brings out some of those maternal or paternal instincts that you have as an audience member. You want to protect children. And mm-hmm. that's also probably, again, why we see that coming out so quickly with Alan Grant. Yes. Even with Alan Grant, I have on here that when they're in the tree, he allows them to snuggle him. And mm-hmm. and as a callback to the way he used to feel about kids, he pulls out that raptor claw out of his pocket that he used with that first kid, even though yeah. why in the world would it be in his pocket? Right. But he pulls it out and he throws it away. Yeah. Kind of like symbolically throwing Mm -hmm. it away another symbolic thing is we hear Hammond say over and over spare no expense spare no expense and it's always like this grand grand thing but in the conversation with the ice cream his last spared no expense Mm. is very it has a deeper meaning yeah it's about the ice cream but it's not about the ice cream I think he's starting to see Mm -hmm. oh I'm really wrong here and I'm so sad Maldoon dies look I drew a little teardrop oh (laughs) (laughs) I said that Lex's freaked out face is my inner spirit when she's holding that jello and shaking like oh girl i know i know sam jackson was supposed to film a death scene but he had to leave i think so that's why they only had his arm do you know that i did not recall that samuel l jackson was in that movie when i was doing the rewatch last night kirk and i were like wait a minute yeah and that was one of his very first ever breakout films Mm -hmm. that was awesome i think he went from that to like pulp fiction or something didn't i I don't know if it was may have been it may have been but it was it was a big jump poor little tim and his sticky up hair how cute was he how (laughs) vulnerable was little tim with his little human piece of toast (laughs) and i have the kids in the kitchen put the most vulnerable people in danger Mm -hmm. and notice that they turned off the kitchen light so lex has learned her lesson she immediately turned out the light (laughs) i was like we're not doing that again and her running with her arms outstretched like this i was like girl i am with you i am with you Uh, okay relatable there's there's a i i'm gonna try to find this for the show notes but there's this little cartoon about the ending to Jurassic Park and it cracks me up now every time I see the the film the scene where Lex has finally got her moment of heroism she set up that she's a hacker she's gonna save the day and Tim is beside her Alan and Ellie are trying to close the door but Ellie can't reach the gun and in the little cartoon Ellie goes if only there was someone who was not doing anything and you see Tim over there by the door <laughs> he's not doing anything Tim clearly could have run and gotten the gun and handed right. it to Ellie but he right. didn't so every time I see that scene I think now if you only think about it if only yeah. there was someone who was not doing <laughs> anything in writing you're supposed to put your character in a tree and throw rocks at them as we both know they are literally faced with nowhere else to go mm-hmm. in the very end They're, they are in that tree the rocks are and then rexy comes in and saves the day mm-hmm. full circle grant and the kids in the helicopter the subplot of his feelings about the children yeah that's the last note such a satisfying it such was a satisfying film yeah i love it gosh i love it i just mm-hmm. love everything about it you can definitely see why it was such a blockbuster yeah, yeah. all right well i think it's pretty obvious who we need to cheers for this Mr. Spielberg again? Mr. Sp- should we and maybe Michael Crichton as well because it came from him and his research. Yeah, let's 
cheers let's cheers michael crichton because it started in his brain steven who brought it to us and rexy who saved the day cheers cheers this episode of scandal water was executive produced by candy thomas that's me and ashley raymer brown that's me it was researched and written by candy thomas and edited by ashley raymer brown all music was written composed performed and mixed by josh martin the artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.